is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello and welcome everyone to this Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Michael Wills, Executive Vice President of NBR. And today we're going to be discussing the political legacy of former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo as Japan prepares for the state funeral for Prime Minister Abe, which is set to take place on September 27th. Abe Shinzo served from 2006 to 2007 briefly as Prime Minister, and then again from 2012 to 2020, one of the longest serving Prime Ministers of Japan. A very powerful leader who brought significant change to Japan's political and economic landscape, uh, economically through his Abenomics program, more significantly perhaps on the political and the security side with his successful push for reinterpretation of Japan's uh, constitution to allow the self-defense forces to begin to play a norm- more normal military role. He also left a strong mark on the international relations, especially of the Indo-Pacific region. Abe was instrumental in creating the quadrilateral security dialogue, which pulls together Japan, Australia, the United States and India. Um, and was also a visionary and really developed the free and open Indo-Pacific vision to promote peace and prosperity across the Asia-Pacific region, terminology which was subsequently adopted by many other countries, both within Asia and beyond. And so in today's podcast, we're going to explore the different ways in which uh, Prime Minister Abe shaped Japanese foreign and security policy, look at his diplomatic achievements, Um, And then his lasting influence on the U.S.-Japan alliance at a time of intensifying strategic competition within the Indo-Pacific region. I'm joined today by two specialists on Japan, uh, both of whom have been longtime contributors to NBR's uh, network of experts and various research projects. Let me introduce uh, introduce them both to you here. Our guests today are Christopher Hughes. He's a professor of international politics and Japanese studies at the University of Warwick. He's also held visiting professorships at Harvard University, the University of Tokyo, and Waseda University. Uh, He's the author of numerous books on Japan, um, including Japan's Foreign and Security Policy Under the Abe Doctrine, published in 2015, and his latest book, Japan as a Global Military Power, New Capabilities, Alliance Integration, Bilateralism Plus, which is published by Cambridge University Press uh, this year, 2022. Our second guest is Yuko Koshino, who's a research fellow for security and technology policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, She was previously affiliated with the Asia Pacific Initiative in Tokyo as the inaugural Matsumote Sumata Fellow in 2020-2021. And prior to joining um, IISS in London, she worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Chris, Yuka, welcome to Asia Insight. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks so much for having me. A question for both of you, but Yuka, let me give you the first go here. Abe's assassination in July was a huge shock, especially in a country like Japan, in which political violence is not a common phenomenon. What's your take on how that that assassination and and the loss of Prime Minister Abe has affected Japan's domestic politics. Has that shock through the system affected how the Kishida administration is looking at its political outlook and its policy priorities? Thank you for that question. I think the biggest, um, I won't say the shift, but maybe the impact on Japanese domestic politics is really the the shock um, that um, a whole Japanese kind of public um, shared after such a tragedy and you know such an assassination has not happened um, after the, the po- in the post-war period um, so that definitely opened up lots of debates around Japanese politics and 
you know, Japanese politicians' relationship with specific groups and all that. But in terms of um, impact on the actual Japanese domestic um, polit- politics or the current existing political structure itself, I would say that, um, you know, the strength of the ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party, um, hasn't really changed. Um, the opposition party is still very weak, but definitely very weak, despite the plummeting of the public opinion and approval rate um, against the Kishida administration. It's definitely not as strong to kind of counter an um, imbalance against the ruling party. So I would say the impact itself of the the political structure has not really changed. Kishida administration uh, has the parliament on his side. There's no national elections for the next three years. Um, so I think it's still a favorable environment overall for Kishida administration to pursue its more kind of heavy-weighted policy agenda in the upcoming month and years. Thanks, Yuka. Let me, uh, Chris, ask you to maybe elaborate on one thing there. Yuka describes how we don't have, we have three three years now of potential stability, no significant domestic um, challenges to the Kishida administration, and yet Japan has a history of very short-term prime ministers, some of whom don't last particularly long. So Prime Minister Suga, who took over after Prime Minister Abe stepped down, was in office for just a, a year or so. Do you think that for that domestic political outlook, does Kishida face any headwinds or potential challenges that might affect his personal position as the prime minister? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I think you could sans analysis is really good. And certainly, I think probably Kishida was thinking when he took over as PM, I guess there was some question about how he would relate to, to Abe and Abe's continuing influence. Of course, he won, a, he won an electoral victory. Uh, and I think he was probably thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting fairly, you know, pretty set fair here now. Uh, and as Yuka-san says, you know, there's a, there's a three-year period, there's no national election. So in a sense, Kishida and the LDP were probably thinking they got a pretty clear run to try and take on some pretty difficult policy issues, particularly in some of the area around defence and security. But, you know, as as you pointed out, Abe's influence and, and of course, you know, where he departed from the political scene has left behind, obviously, his his policy legacy, but also, as you alluded to, it's it's opened up all kinds of sort of rather difficult domestic problems, uh, which is, so in a sense, Abe's still influencing things, even though he's, he's you know, he's he's no longer active on the political scene. So, I mean, I think I think the problem is that there's still there's still sort of elements of, if you like, political scandal now, which have reemerged. So, the whole relationship between the, the governing Liberal Democratic Party uh, and the Unification Church that has, as as the media has started to learn more details about Abe's assassin, uh, uh, Abe's own relationship with the Unification Church, uh, and the LDP's relationship with the Unification Church. I think this has begun to, to sort of begun to sort of drag on uh, Kishida's credibility and the LDP's credibility. Now, how far that influence really goes, I think I think there's a, there's a broad spectrum of influence. It may not be as great as the media is making out, but nevertheless, uh, it's pretty clear the Japanese public don't like this 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 idea that um, new religious groups are influencing uh, politics. They've never really liked this, um, and this is clearly hurting uh, Kishida in the opinion polls, and that's going to complicate his domestic agenda. The other thing, of course, is actually, I mean, of course, as you say, it's not far away, but the state funeral as well, the way that's been handled by the LDP. Again, I think they thought this was a, probably, this is a sort of, you know, sort of an inevitable, natural thing to do for a, for a leader of uh, Abe's consequence. But actually, that's run into a lot of difficulties, not, over, not only over the cost, which seems to be ballooning, but also uh, some of the, some of the, the 
some of the rituals that they would like the Japanese public or Japanese public government agencies to engage in. I think that's that's not playing very well with the Japanese public as well. So I think this is very difficult. And I think actually, I think this may pass. Um, but I think the most difficult thing actually is the fact that, that now that Abe has gone off the political scene, uh, the problem is what to do with his faction. So there were worries that Abe and Kishida might have some contestation over policy issues like uh, how to manage the economy and some rejection of of Abe's legacy. But I think Abe was largely lined up behind Kishida. And of course, he was the leader of the largest faction. uh, And that would have given uh, Kishida significant uh, unity within the LDP to pursue uh, many of the policy agendas, especially around defence and security that Abe would also like to see. But now that, that, that faction is leaderless. And I think the Abe faction is, is, is searching for a leader, searching for a purpose uh, and for internal LDP cohesion to deal with some of these issues. I think that's going to be quite challenging over the next few months. And it's going to probably slow down some of Kishida's momentum. That, that's fascinating. And let me just follow that, uh, that thread a little bit, because I've, I've not looked at those factional politics within the LDP. But uh, Chris, you first and then Yuka, if you have anything to add. Who are some of the potential leaders that might emerge from that Abe faction? I mean, is, does it stay together as a, as a unified faction within the party or does it potentially splinter and the different members who were fully sort of underneath Abe start to drift toward other factions within the LDP? I don't, I don't think it will splinter. I mean, I'd be really interested to hear what, what Yuka-san has to say about this, but I, I don't think it will splinter. It's pretty, it's pretty reasonably cohesive. But I think the fact is, you know, Abe was such a dominant figure. I think he had that faction pretty well taped in terms of it's 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 um willingness to align with broader ldp policy and now they are sort of somewhat searching for some a sort of big figure to replace to replace abe so i think that's going to take some time for them to to get around to that and that's going to again there's some important decisions coming up particularly around the end of the year around um, defense and security and uh, new national um, security strategy and things around you know, we may talk about later around strike capability and all these kinds of things and uh, Kishida needs needs the the Abe faction behind him I think in order to get these things done because it's going to the LDP is going to encounter some some real headwinds I think from the opposition and even from its own coalition partner uh, the Kormato on this so it's going to need to be pretty 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 unified but I'd be really interested to hear what what Yuka-san has to has to has feels about this as well she may be even have even more detailed knowledge than I have. Yes, well, um, I actually generally agree with Chris's um, analysis and observations, but I think what's very difficult right now is not just who is going to be heading the the Abe fraction, you know, after the loss of Abe, but, you know, another thing that complicates is what we've been discussing is, you know, the LDP politicians' ties with the Unification Church and how the public uh, thinks that uh, the explanation or investigation has not been fully done to assess this and Unless this becomes clear, it's very difficult even, you know, within the fraction to really decide who is actually the person to be leading those fractions. And also, you know, I mentioned in the very beginning that the the political structure hasn't really changed because of the weak opposition. But in a way, I would say that it could it it shifted in a way. It's now more crystallizing the kind of old classic Japanese politics um, since back in 1955, where it's more of a fraction politics within LDP, as a competition more within the LDP um, to pursue certain policy uh, preferences rather than competition with the opposition party. So that's that could be, I mean, it's more of a return, but definitely a shift from the, the, the early 2000s, where the opposition party was still competing against the LDP. Yuka, thanks. Thanks for that additional assessment there. 
Earlier this year, you and Robert Ward put out a book on Japan um, as a geoeconomic actor. And, and so that was really looking at sort of geopolitics and economics and the sort of foundations of, of Japan's national power on the economic basis of those. Obviously, Prime Minister Abe um, had a, a strong Abenomics uh, policy and attempt to sort of revive Japanese economy after really now two plus decades of, of stagnation. Thinking about broadly, we've got the, the impact of the COVID pandemic, which has affected economies around the world. Obviously, the war in Ukraine right now and, and the, the additional uh, challenges that that's posing, posing to, to um, uh, national economies is significant. How do you think the Kishida administration will approach economic growth? I mean, does, does Kishida have a plan beyond Abenomics? Does he have some ways to kind of help generate the growth that Japan has been struggling to find for so many years? I think the, one of the key legacies um, that uh, Prime Minister Abe left um, is really Japan's use of its economic power and economic endowment for strategic purposes. So we wrote this book kind of to counter-argue counter that, you know, Japan is relying on its economic power because its military power is constrained. But they're strategically, you, you know, focusing on economic means because that's the really central part of the competition. Uh, what was uh, significant about Prime Minister Abe is, is one, you know, for, for domestic economic purposes, try to kind of take Japan out of deflation through Abenomics, as you mentioned. And then secondly, I also try to project its geoeconomic power um, and, and, and also kind of conceptualize its geoeconomic thinking and, and revise its tools for that. And on the first point of growth, um, so still, you know, even after the Prime Minister Abe's Abenomics and what Kishida administration faces now is challenges to growth. So, you know, Abenomics has three arrows. One was monetary easing, and then the second was fiscal stimulus, and then the third was growth. And ironically, because of the the, the inflation right now, they finally met the, um, the inflation 2% target uh, this year. Um, and there was some increases in revenues in companies, but just that the structural reform um, hasn't been really fulfilled under Abe. And that is why when we hear um, Kishida administration, the economic policy, what he calls as a new form of capitalism, still trying to, um, I think the, the key is still to try to tackle growth. And he has, although it's it's more focused on, you know, the balancing of redistribution and growth, he still kind of um, laid out in his growth strategy um, earlier in, in, in June that um, um, the administration is trying to incentivize companies to pursue R&D. But, you know, it was before the election, so the nuts and bolts and the actual meat hasn't really come out yet. But it, it shows that it's a little bit of a change of focus, but still growth is really the key challenge for Kishida administration. And in terms of the geoeconomics aspect of the economic policy, I would say that um, there's a mix of continuation of, of the Abe administrations in terms of trying to continue to promote the real space economic order in the region by, you know, continuing to promote uh, CPTPP and, and, and involve like-minded partners. Like right now, it's focusing on the accession of UK or cooperating with, with the United States because the United States is not in CPTPP and still, you know, under the, the Indo-Pacific uh, economic framework, trying to, try to set uh, high standards for economic order. I would say that the, maybe the difference um, would be more focus on economic security, which also we are also argue in the book that it's an important element of uh, geoeconomics. So traditionally, Japan's economic security was more about energy security. It was more about the you know export control and, and defensive measures. Um, but what's very interesting about the Kishida administration since 
Kishida administration's new economic security framework is that it has some active element um, of using kind of choke points. They have this interesting concept and um, they have two concepts for the economic security, which is strategic autonomy and then the strategic indispensability. Now, strategic autonomy is kind of similar to what Europe has been pursuing investing more in chips or um, making sure that they have production capabilities on strategic goods. But strategic indispensability is more about finding like where uh, Japan has can leverage its strength, either in technology or in supply chains, to, to leverage its position and to pursue its, its own kind of interest. Now, we haven't really heard what this actually means, but this concept itself, it seems like a interesting concept that um, other like-minded countries are trying to kind of study more and uh, and, and pursue and potentially could uh, provide a, a template for other middle middle powers to navigate the US-China competition. Thanks, Yuka. That's that's fascinating. Chris, let me come back to you first and then go to, back to Yuka again. Moving from, from the economic side more towards sort of the foreign policy side and the, the, the defense policy side, you know, I've heard over the over the past year that that Kishida has traditionally been seen as a more a member of a more dovish faction within the LDP. I mean, you know, Abe had 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 really pushed the boundaries of of you know pushing the constitutional reform and and sort of some other domestic changes that that would improve um, uh, Japan's ability to act as a as a normal power within the region. Chris, first, do you see much potential difference for how the Kishida administration will either follow the Abe legacy and kind of continue to pursue this this course that, that Abe seemed to set Japan on while he was prime minister, or thinking back to some of these, especially either the economic um, policies that, that Yuka just mentioned, some of the other challenges that are in the region, obviously the relationship with China, the evolution of, the, of, of Russia's war in Ukraine. Will we expect to see in 2023 the Kishida led Japan follow a similar path in terms of foreign policy as Abe has has led Japan. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I I think you're right. I mean, Kishida was um, certainly before he he ran for president of LDP and became prime minister. I think he was, um, even though he had he, you know it's a very long experienced foreign foreign minister and and you know was an integral part of Abe's um, uh, whole approach to um, foreign security policy i think there was a, a sense that somehow because he was from the one of the more moderate you know so-called moderate factions the kochikai which is always seen as sort of mainstream moderate faction of the of the liberal democratic party whereas you know abe came from the from the more the right uh of of, of the ldp that somehow he was going to um look to sort of slightly reorient uh japanese foreign policy and i, and I think we've seen some some hints of that um so, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of Kishida to try to articulate this idea of a sort of new, uh, new realism for foreign policy, sort of new realism in foreign policy. Um, as Yuka said, I think he's very, you know, he's very interested in economic security. So there's a, a little bit of shift of emphasis from 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 Abe. Not that Abe was disinterested in that, uh, but I think fundamentally, actually, I think one of the interesting things we've seen is that Kishida is pretty much bound into. That overall trajectory that that, that Abe has set um, in in many of sort of key facets of 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 Japanese foreign and defence policy, or what I've you know what I called the the shift from the from the Yoshida doctrine, which is kind of the old mainstream, to the Abe doctrine, which I think has established a pretty new pathway for for Japan and its foreign and security policy. So 
Um, I mean, I think if you look, if you look in terms of the sort of big ticket initiatives that, that Abe undertook, uh, that you has already talked about some of them, but and, and you've mentioned them as well, Michael. So the the free and uh, open Indo-Pacific, um, I don't see any change there at all. Uh, I mean, Suga carried on with that. I think Kishida is very, very determined to carry on with that because it, you know it adds potentially tremendous value to um, uh, Japan's diplomatic leverage, convening power. Um, it provides a um, a conceptual. Uh, um, legitimization and and, and um, momentum for for Japanese foreign policy in, in the Asia Pacific. So I, I don't see any any change there. I think in in terms of the 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 what, the, the U.S. Japan alliance again, that's just remains so so central to Japanese foreign and, and defense policy and all of the changes that I think that Abe put in place. You know, Kishida obviously retains, and I think he'll he'll build upon those around defense policy. In terms of what he campaigned on and what he seems to be trying to implement in government, in some ways he's even more radical than, than Abe, or he wants to continue the things that Abe didn't quite get around to. So uh, I think there's there's very little uh, change there. I think we did. There was a lot of debate about how he would approach China, and you know whether because he you know he, pro- he appointed a you know allegedly more sort of sympathetic China foreign minister, which I think was never really a correct understanding anyway. So um, therefore he was going to sort of somehow go softer on, on China. I mean, of course, Abe was trying to engage China. So I think Kishida is a very similar kind of um, uh, approach, really. It's, it's to engage China through strength. So, you know, the view is that China only respects strength, really. So Japan has to be strong economically and in defense, and therefore it will be able to, you know, have a, and be able, China will take Japan more seriously. So I don't see a great deal of difference there either, really. So I think there's a huge amount of, of continuity, where I think there are some differences, I think will be certainly around economic security and pushing a little bit a little bit harder in that area and i think one of the really big changes of course which is which has come along is the war in ukraine and i think that's had a pretty uh, and again i think you could refer to this but i think a pretty seismic shock uh, in japan uh, in thinking about relations with with russia thinking about just the, the the vulnerabilities of japan in terms of its own its own region and of course it's brought to the fore the question of taiwan again as well, which was, you know, already, you know, Japanese policymakers were, th- were thinking, contemplating, thinking about this, but it's really pushed it to the surface, I think. And I think it's it's kind of galvanized a lot of Japanese policymakers in the LDP, but also even the opposition parties to think that actually a lot of what Abe wanted to do, they may not um, take on board everything he wants to do, but Japan certainly needs to be very serious about defense policy and needs to continue on that track. So uh, I don't see too many fundamental differences uh, at the moment, and certainly events are pushing Kishida very much in the Abe doctrine direction. Uh, I'm not sure Kishida really wanted to depart that much from it anyway, and I think he's he's got limited scope at the moment to really sort of try and develop anything too different. Thanks. I, I want to come back to security and strategic thinking in just a minute, but between Yuka's comments earlier about the sort of economic security and the discussions with, with the UK over CPTPP, and Chris, you just mentioned both Russia and, and Taiwan and China. I, I want to do sort of some quick takes on um, sort of Japan's relations with some of the other major powers that affect it. And so let's go a little bit deeper with the Japan-Russia relationship. I remember some years ago, there was sort of speculation and, and Abe himself was pushing hard for some kind of resolution with Russia that potentially would see the return of, of the, the Northern Territories. 
but obviously the war on Ukraine has, has fundamentally reshaped a lot of international relations. How, from your perspective, either one of you, how, how is Tokyo looking at relations with Moscow? How is Tokyo imagining Japan-Russia relations through the remainder of the war, however long it lasts, and then in a post-war environment? Has, has Russia's invasion of Ukraine fundamentally changed Japan's ability to work with Russia in the future? I, I completely agree with um, in Chris's statement around uh, a lot of the continuities, um, but maybe one of the differences is Japan-Russia relations. And uh, former Prime Minister Abe had some hopes on normalizing relationship or hoping that the economic cooperation between Russia could lead to a potential like normalization with Russia. Although, you know, the Russia's invasion on Ukraine and the external environment is really shaped um, Japan's course, but the Kishida administration has taken a very strong, a tough approach on uh, Russia's invasion on Ukraine this time and aligned really with the G7 countries and the West on, on sanctions on unprecedented level, uh, which was welcomed by United States and, and, and UK and, and, and Europe and, and much more closer uh, relations sought between NATO as well when uh, Prime Minister Kishida also attended the, the meeting. And that also was driven by the fact that Japan also sees, sees the Sino-Russia cooperation as the major threat right now. And they see the two authoritarian countries that are challenging the rules-based order. And Prime Minister Kishida also made it very clear um, during the Shangri-La dialogue this year um, that the WWS hosted um, that what we see in Ukraine now is the future of East Asia. So he's really trying to play this, uh, the role to convey what's happening in Europe is, could be happen, which is the real challenges to the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific region and to gain support from Europe on situation in Asia. And, and in that sense, it seems like uh, Kishida administration uh, was able to take a tougher stance on Russia because security around the Taiwan Strait is so important and Japan has high stakes in it. Thanks. And Chris, I'm going to come to you and ask you to maybe elaborate on this a little bit. You mentioned that the Kishida administration really hasn't changed its posture on China. I think the, the parallels of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, the challenge that China poses to Taiwan has obviously been in everybody's mind um, this, this whole calendar year. A significant increase in, in tensions in the last few weeks as China's military exercises around Taiwan and, and pressure on Taiwan have really stepped up. Do you think that Tokyo is going to have to take a tougher line toward China, given the, on the one hand, the intensification of the challenges that China is posing to its neighbors. And on the other hand, this deepening relationship between Russia and China, it seems like under Abe, it's very much strengthened the U.S. alliance, very much strengthened its position, countering authoritarianism across the region. But we had another sort of tipping point here where China's actions are actually pushing Japan very firmly in a direction that whether it's Kishida's long-lasting or not as prime minister, Japan is now set on a course that is going to have a, a, a tense relationship with China. Of course, this is always the, the most important question for Japanese foreign policy and how to position itself vis-a-vis -vis China and the United States. As Yuka alluded to, I mean, I think, um, as I mentioned earlier in my comments, I mean, I think, I think Japan would still always prefer to engage China in some way. And certainly, Japan is very you know, reluctant to decouple as some in the United States might want to argue for the US or even for, for its allies. So Japan will, will resist that. And again, you know, I think what uh, Yuka said about in economic security, about in a sense having a sort of indispensability. And actually, I think you know, the, the Japanese strategy is to sort of hang in there uh, in terms of linkages with China and to mean that China has some dependency on Japan as well, rather than 
so therefore that's going to if sort of, sort of in some ways that's going to shape Chinese behavior now whether that's you know that's a realistic policy or not we can we you know we can we can debate that but nevertheless I think you know Japan will continue to try and engage you know economically diplomatically um, and, and where it thinks it can shape Chinese behavior but I think it's becoming more difficult and certainly Chinese behavior towards Taiwan and you know the fear that you know, Taiwan could be Asia's Ukraine as as, as Yuka-san has said I think is it's beginning to mean that Japan is finding it harder and harder to sort of postpone some of those choices about what it needs to do in the event of something you know really dramatic happening in the Taiwan Strait. Now again of course you know Japan to, at all costs would like to avoid being involved in any kind of destabilization of Taiwan, any change of the status quo by force, um, becoming involved in any kind of you know conflict between China and United States over Taiwan. But nevertheless, um, whilst it's working to try and avoid, you know, to, to try and um, obviate those kinds of outcomes, nevertheless, I think what we've seen in, in recent months is very strong signalling by Japan that, it, if necessary, it will uh, align itself more strongly with with Taiwan, and the United States, in a, in a in some kind of crisis. You know, particularly what I've been, you know, what I've been studying, I think, is the what's happening on the ground, if you like, in terms of Japan's military dispositions around its southwestern islands and how it is mirroring very much U.S. Uh, strategy uh, for the defence of Taiwan and becoming increasingly integrated into that. So, of course, you know, Japanese policymakers are always looking for options. They're always looking for ways of trying to maintain leeway and strate- sort of strategic leeway. But I feel something is beginning to change in Japanese policymakers' mindsets uh, and if they're really serious about defending the international order, that's their rhetoric, then they're going to have to back it up. Um, and certainly the U.S. expectation is growing for them to do that. And I think, you know, what certainly um, what the U.S. is saying, what the Biden administration is saying, is, you know, if you want to be defended by us, then you have to help, you know, you have to help us uh, and you have to defend yourselves. Um, so I think we could be at a very interesting moment in, 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 in Japanese uh, defense policy. Chris, let me stay with you for just a moment here. This is this is really interesting. I, I believe that, that Japan is is working on a new national security strategy that will be coming out in, in, a, in a few months' time. This was one of, I think, Prime Minister Abe's legacy issues, I think the creation of a national security council within the Japanese government system, uh, the development of clear national security strategies and publication of those was a departure under his leadership. Thinking about what you've just said about how both the pressures uh, from China, the need to defend Japan's southwestern islands, the need to be a, a strong and reliable alliance partner to the United States. What are you expecting to see in terms of signaling or priorities that might be mentioned in that national security strategy? And specifically, whether there are some capabilities or, or, or other sort of military dimensions? I mean, what, what do you imagine sh- will be in there? What would you like to see in there from from the work that you've done on Japan's emergence as a military power? This is going to be a very important document. And obviously, alongside the national security strategy, there'll be a revision of the uh, National Defence Programme guidelines and the Midterm Defence Programme, which they may rename it. And there's some talk about they may call them the National Defence Strategy now and the National Defence Development Plan. And it may be a 10-year plan rather than a five-year plan to sort of enhance uh, planning. But there will be this, there'll be the, at the end of the year, early into next year, there'll be this big, I think, quite transformational, potentially, set of, set of documentation, which is going to, again, shift Japanese 
defence doctrine and the capabilities to go to go with it. Most of it has been telegraphed pretty care, you know, pretty clearly in terms of what the LDPs and the government's intentions are. Whether they'll get everything or not, we'll have to see. But I think what we're going to see is probably tougher talk on on China. The last NSS was, you know, said a few things about China, but I think it was fairly mild, mild in in line with the things I've talked about. But I think it, there'll be tougher talk about that. And obviously, there's been a lot of changes in between around things like collective self-defence, you know, Ukraine, Russia, and so on, defence of the international order. So I think that will be talked up. And then I think, yeah, very interesting will be the, the, the sort of capabilities that go with it. And certainly, there'll be, there'll be a very strong rationale, I think, which will back the, the increases in defence spending that the LDP wants to, wants to put in, in place, um, which is already beginning to do. But obviously, what its what its its aim is is to get somewhere towards two percent of GDP for defence expenditure, and to radically strengthen defence capabilities as as it's constantly talking about. And I'm sure that will be somewhere in the NSS. That kind of language will be in there. And we've also seen, you know, this year we've seen a defence budget request from the Ministry of Defence. So they've they've got I think they've they've increased the defence budget well over another one percent one two percent or so uh, the the existing budget but they've put in a request for nearly a hundred a sort of huge shopping list an inventory of new capabilities that they would like to procure uh, how much that's going to cost I don't know but it could be really major defence expenditure and you know just to go through the kind of shopping list I mean a lot of it is around uh, new missile capabilities um, so air launched. Uh, land-launched, what they call standoff weapons, which are essentially cruise missiles. Again, that's the, the, the sort of you know Japanese oblique language for, uh, for, for for capabilities, but they're cruise missiles, hypersonic glide vehicles, more investment in missile defence, unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned surface vehicles, more investment in space sensors, cyber, something that Yukasan knows a lot about, command and control, uh, enhanced mobility for S- for the SDF. Logistics, building up stocks of where the, where the SF has generally been traditionally seen to be weak, which is in sort of logistics and supplies of ammunition, hardening of ammunition dump fuel stocks, ability to repair runways more carefully, all the kinds of things you need for a contingency in, <laughs> that might look like a Taiwan Strait conflict. And to be able to support the United States, its ability, you know, US Marine Corps, the ability of the rest of the US military to surge into into that area and then of course the other really key thing is counter-strike so this has been the huge debate in japan over the last year or so abe again triggered this off because he concluded that missile defenses alone were not going to be sufficient to defend japan so therefore japan needed to start to think about what he called enhanced deterrence which again is oblique language for not just having a shield but having some sort of spear capability of japan's uh, which again could complement those of the, the strike capabilities of the United States. And I think this is the big, the big hurdle that, that Kishida really wants to clear in the NSS is to have that very clearly written that um, Japan not only has the capability to do this, or to develop the capability, it's beginning to develop the capability, but actually this is a legitimate part of defense, defense doctrine in Japan. I mean, Japan can do this legally and constitutionally, but it needs it needs that doctrine, I think, to be firmly established and there will be some political manoeuvring around that, but I think that could be the really big takeaway item from from the from the NSS and the other revised documents at the end of the year. Thanks, Chris. That's a, a an incredibly useful roadmap for those of us watching Japan over the coming months to sort of uh, see one 
element of, of Abe's legacy playing out and, and one element of Japan's normalization uh, as, as it uh, kind of plays that that typical role as a, as a major power within the region. Yukar, I'd like to come back with you and sort of move back to this this world of geostrategy, geoeconomics, and specifically ask you about, you know, you mentioned um, sort of Tokyo potentially sort of setting out a pathway for other middle powers to follow. I'm very curious for your views on Japan's relationships with some of the other middle powers within the region that Japan is associated with. I'm thinking specifically of Australia and India as part of the Quad. You mentioned earlier Japan sort of keeping the flame of TPP alive with CPTPP, currently negotiating with the um, uh, with the British government about the UK's potential accession to that. But I'm curious also for your views on Japan's role, not just with the UK, but with the EU, with France, with Germany, some of the other major European powers. Again, thinking in the context of this year where we've seen NATO uh, involve Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand in the AP plus four. We've seen a NATO strategic document that has mentioned China as a a significant strategic challenge for for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to deal with. So I'm curious for your views on how Japan is likely to, to work on its economic relationships with specifically Australia, India, the UK, the EU. Can you provide us a similar roadmap to what Chris did for defence in terms of things we might expect to see Kishida drive in, in, in terms of Japan's role with those sort of geoeconomic relationships with some of the other dem- democratic powers that are going to affect the Indo-Pacific? Sure. Um, this, this kind of goes back to, um, you know, what I hope to see um, in, the, in the, you know, in my observation and in, in the national security strategy. But one other thing is the inclusion of economic security and the overall national security strategy. Now, this is very important for Japan because Japan's economic security, as I mentioned, is also has some kind of more active measures and offensive measures, including the development of emerging technologies, uh, more specifically the development of dual use technology. This is very important because there's a lot of hesitations, especially around academia, on getting involved in military relevant research um, because of the uh, Science Council of Japan's statement uh, in the post-war period and reinforcing that back in 2017 when uh, the Ministry of Defense started to um, fund more you know, R&D in basic technologies uh, for dual use application. So what the interesting kind of element of Japan's economic security is by calling it economic security, they're trying to increase new funds that will eventually, you know, a- another alternative venue to apply the emerging technology um, in the civilian sector for defense purposes. Um, on top of the ongoing basic R&D um, investments that the Ministry of Defense or the Procurement Agency ATLA has been pursuing. So this increases the um, budget for um, technology um, that will be applied uh, for militaries. And it's really key for some of the core projects that were listed already in the um, in the budget request for next year, like the unmanned technologies um, or, um, you know, cross-domain operational capabilities, which is primarily like space and cyber. Another element is 
that although Japan have already kind of adopted active cyber defense um, in the in the previous uh, maybe the potential new national defense strategy, the, the previous national defense program guideline, it, it seems like there's some reporting shows that um, this active defense could be applied for non-defense communication system to protect Japanese overall civilian industrial communication system. This is significant because Japan still faces constitutional and legal limitations uh, for uh, the government to actually um, intervene. Um, in, 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 the, in the civilian section. So really interested in looking at um, the intersection of, of economic security and economics and how it's going to be addressed um, in the national security strategy, but how it's also going to be addressed in the overall budget in the upcoming year. Um, so this relates to Japan's relations um, with, uh, with other countries. What we're seeing in Quad or in, in NATO and Europe and UK more specifically is the growing relationship between the defense industrial and defense kind of R&D, which Japan is really trying to expand. Uh, previously, although Japan uh, changed the guidelines of the um, arms transfer, the three principles for, for arms transfer uh, in 2014, um, the, the interaction between uh, was, was very much limited. The only kind of R&D and co-production was with the United States in the, um, in, the in the missile development. And in, even within the defense equipment transfer, um, the only case uh, off the shelf kind of transfer was the air radar system to the Philippines. So those are the two types of things that Japan is still trying to pursue in its defense relations. And with the more advanced countries like, um, you know, NATO countries or Australia, India, and, and UK, they're trying to uh, pursue joint R&D and some of the uh, military capabilities that they've listed or they are they are going to list in the procurement strategy. But also with the, some of the Asian countries, um, like, like the ASEAN countries, Japan has been um, expanding its agreements, the MOU for defense equipment and technology transfer, and recent, most recently, um, and you know, started the negotiation with Singapore as well. You know, it was announced when Prime Minister Kishida visited um, Singapore for the Shangri-La. Um, so this defense industrial and technology cooperation is is one thing that another thing that uh, might be included interesting to follow in the in the, in the ongoing defense review and and how how Japan is trying to going going to uh expand it what the MOD is going to how the MOD is going to support the defense industry which has been primarily focused on its uh, per, um, providing domestic uh, equipment and how the Japanese defense industry can also change the mindset of um, how to become more kind of business um, you know how, how to bring incentives for businesses to change and, uh, and and change its posture to a more outward one. Thank you Yuka well this has been a, a really insightful, fascinating discussion. I mean, thinking about, Yuka, what you've just mentioned in terms of those economic security arrangements, what Chris was describing earlier about the defense capabilities, to me, these seem like very clear signs that the legacy of Prime Minister Abe, sort of in terms of setting Japan on a course, is definitely fully integrated now within the Japanese body politic, and that despite, obviously, differences between different factions of the LDP, despite different political opinions within Japan and opposition parties. You're both describing a, a Japan that is really moving in a, in a direction that, that seems very clearly based on, on some of the vision that, that he provided. So let me thank you both again. Chris Hughes joining us from today from the University of Warwick, uh, Yuka Koshino from the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Thank you both for your comments. Um, it's been a, a fascinating discussion on uh, Abe Shinzo's legacy. And we hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Asia Insight. And we'll look forward to you joining us for future conversations on other issues facing the uh, Indo-Pacific region. 
Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.